Welcome to the Memories of a Moonbird podcast, exploring life one story at a time. Hello, friends. I'm Daniel Sherl. Today on the show, for close to 30 years, she's worked as a scientist for USAID, the United States Agency for International Development. Today, she's the Chief of Research Technology and Utilization in the Office of Population and Reproductive Health. Originally from Calcutta, India, and having worked and traveled many places in her life, she's seen sides of the world that not many of us do. In addition to holding two masters and a PhD, she's also a mom and a passionate artist who's gonna talk with me about what it was like growing up in India, putting her art on hold for 25 years, and working in public health. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Dr. Mahira Kara. Dr. Kara, welcome to the show. Thank you, Daniel. That was a great intro. <laughs> my pleasure, my <laughs> pleasure. Uh, what was it like growing up in India? That's my first question. Well, I was one of the very fortunate ones. My family was, shall I say, middle class. My dad worked in the railways, so we traveled a lot. We moved every two years. So at that point, it seemed like, okay, changing schools every two years was a chore. But looking back, it was one of the best things that happened to us for my brother and myself, because we moved around, we saw a lot of, we made new friends. We still have some of those friends from all those years ago. So we grew up in a really nice environment. And this is every two years moving around India or other countries? Yeah, around India, mostly in the east and north, because that's where the particular railways that my dad was always moved into. But yeah, mostly Calcutta, West Bengal and UP in Mm. Uttar Pradesh. So that's why we learned to speak Bangla and Hindi was the subject we had to study in school and our mother tongue is Telugu. So essentially wow. we have four languages to deal with at any one point. And you're obviously fluent in English. Do you speak any other languages? Yeah, Telugu, which is my mother tongue, Bangla and Hindi. And wow, that's impressive. That's actually it's not for any Indian growing up at that time, especially because most of my friends speak at least that many languages. I think most Americans don't. I think most Americans grow up speaking English and they don't really go much further than that. You know, I, yeah. I took a little bit of Spanish and then Russian because my family's a quarter Russian. But yeah, fascinating. Well, I'm curious, what with the railways, did you grow up with a passion for trains and do you love trains today? Or oh, no? yeah. We traveled all the time. I mean, my dad during summers to visit my grandparents and all that. So traveling by train was kind of the norm for us. And when I came here, actually, I miss not, I mean, train travel is such a big thing in India, not like here. Here it's cars, but there we move around in trains, at least at that time. Now, of course, cars are getting popular. And on top of it, for people employed in the railways, especially in senior positions like my dad, when he moved into them, they would go on inspections. And so a special coach was always attached in the end where they could take family. So it was like having this little moving home on the train. That was fantastic. I love train travel. And I love when we go to Europe and places like that, that we just get to sit back and relax and see the world. It's such a a fantastic way to travel. Yeah. Well, what was little Mahira like as a child? (laughs) I suppose most of my friends will say the same as now, always a troublemaker in the sense, (laughs) extremely opinionated, extremely vocal. And yeah, I suppose argumentative, which still goes on to this day. So, (laughs) and yeah, and interested in good at school. Yeah, because worked hard and loved art, thanks to my cousin who came and stayed with us. And I realized that there was so much art in the family. And then we didn't have TV in those days. So it was a lot of playing with other kids, which was a very good thing. I really feel bad for my kids growing up. 
that it wasn't like that. We just go out and was, there were railway colonies. So pretty safe. And so we always played outside mm. all the time. And that's the part I really think kids today, I suppose in certain neighborhoods they can, but there's so much other stuff going on. It's yeah. kind of sad not to see that. Well, what's a brief story that your parents would tell about you as a child? Yeah, well, constantly arguing. There was not a thing that I wouldn't question them about, argue about, and always kind of fighting for causes in many ways and getting into trouble with school. Oh yeah, I almost got expelled once in the seventh grade. <laughs> that was that was for a what? Oh, there was there were a couple of teachers. I mean the one teacher who constantly was going after us with using all kinds of phrases, which was an English teacher. One day I just sat at the back and noted down everything she said and didn't realize that I had noted it down on my book at the back. It's okay. And then one day she said, okay, she gave us dictation and said, one of you give me your book. And I gave it to her and she had to open it on the last page and saw it. <laughs> and that got me to the principal. My grandmother was so worried that I would get expelled because if you got expelled, you couldn't get into any other school. Mm. But luckily, thanks to, I've always had great grades. So the principal kind of gave me a talking to and I managed to survive that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm curious, when you were a little girl, what did you want to be? Actually, at that point, I thought I was going to be a nuclear scientist because I had a great physics teacher in high school. So I always thought I was going to do nuclear physics. Mm. And it's always the influence of teachers. It's so important. Then in the 10th grade, I think our chemistry teacher changed and this fabulous, fabulous teacher came. So I went into chemistry and always my whole family, except for my grandma, my grandmother was the first woman engineer in South Asia. She had a hard life. She was a young widow. Thanks to her father, she became an engineer and the first ever. So everybody said, oh, you're going to be like your grandmother and go for engineering. I said, no, I don't want to. Everybody <laughs> kept pressuring. And my grandmother was the only one who supported me. I said, do what you want. And I lived with her for many years through high, through college. And because my dad was always posted in these small places where there were no colleges or schools. Mm. So I've stayed with my grandmother a lot. And she was the one who really encouraged me to apply for graduate school in the US. She sounds like she was an incredible person. She was. And she died very young. She was only 60. And she died one month before I got my admission to Penn State. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, what's something about you today that's still very distinctly Calcutta? Oh, I love Calcutta. I still do. It's still what I consider home when I think about it. I visit, visited it last. Um, well, what's a, what's a trait about your personality that's very distinctly from that region? Calcutta is full of art and artists and every family. It's like almost uh, given that there's going to be an artist or singer in the family. I can't sing to save my life, but <laughs> art. And I love Bengali art. I still when I doodle on my paper, it's always the Bengali alpana. It's called alpana. It's a kind of traditional art. So when I'm How sitting in yeah, uh, A-L-P-A-N-A, -A, if you look okay. it up, it's a kind of um, motif, uh, kind of art that you can use to actually paint the floors, do anything. They would use that. It's a traditional form of art. And whenever I'm sitting in meetings and doodling, that's what I do. I still do alpanas automatically. And it's like, that's ingrained in me. That's cool. And of course, the lo love for sweets. God, Bengali sweets are amazing. And <laughs> it's it's got me into trouble recently. Too much sweets. Well, Calcutta and Cleveland, Ohio must have things in common because I have a love for sweets too. Let me tell oh, you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> when did you first become interested in science? Actually, right through, see, in India at that time, the, there were very few options for careers. And my grand, unlike uh, most families, my grandmother, having been through what she did, she wanted to make sure that I was career-oriented and not just uh, educated for the sake of getting educated, which is what happened with a lot of my cousins. So at that time, the only careers that were truly available were medicine, teaching, those kinds of things. And anything in the humanities really didn't make you money. <laughs> that's still true today. <laughs> yeah, my whole yeah, that's true. And my whole family kept saying, no, you're good in the sciences, just stick to the sciences, keep art as a hobby. And so I went into it automatically because that's what you do. And coming here, I did biochemistry, but got more and more interested in outside the lab things. I wanted to do something with human beings and having by then seen so much about the difference in development between international, I mean, the US and other countries, I wanted to do something on the, in the international sphere. And so I went into nutrition, which is the closest to chemistry, but very much people-oriented. It was mm -hmm. still a biochemical program, but I actually got to work with people. And that's what moved me more into public health. Well, and I'm going to ask you some more questions about that in a few minutes, but I want to jump back to a couple cultural things, actually. I'm curious, how do you think growing up Indian is different than growing up in, in America or growing up as an American? Because you have two children that grew up in America. Ah, lots of different things. I mean, the whole... Social norms today are very different in cities than it was at that time. So essentially, my family was very progressive. So it's not as if they barred me from meeting boys through friends. I mean, they were all, but we were always in groups. You never went out with the boy alone. Mm. And it wasn't like the boyfriend-girlfriend relationship here. And idea of sex before marriage was just a taboo. And that was kind of ingrained into us. Okay. And yeah, and 90% uh, of the people in my family have had arranged marriages, including my parents. Wow. And so I was never against it. Not that I went that way, it just so happened that I chose my own spouse. But if they had arranged a marriage for me at that time, it wouldn't have been something that I would have been against. Most of my cousins have arranged marriages and it's, they're all working fine. So it's a very different attitude towards Marriage but are those marriages more business relationships and, no. and teammate things, or are they love? They end up, the, the affection and all grows. I mean, most of those marriages are extremely successful amongst my cousins. They all love their spouses, but they didn't start off doing that. It was arranged by families. They met each other a couple, few times. And there, there's so much that goes on in arranging a match in the sense that families have very similar values and backgrounds and the kids have grown up very similarly. So it's not as if uh, they choose someone you can't talk to. Those those days were in the 1800s. Not yeah, It's not like they're choosing someone for title and property. No, and, and, uh, no, no, no. We need no, to merge no. these two houses like Game of Thrones, right? No, <laughs> it's actually about education. Do they do they have similar backgrounds? Will And the girl and boy talk to each other and make sure that they're okay with careers. It's like anything, even with the marriage, if you fall in love and get married, there's no guarantee it's going to succeed. It's right. a, it's a, it's now, either a lot way. Of people, a lot of people would push back on that and say that that's a very antiquated kind of chauvinistic way of doing things that you arrange for people to be together. How, how do you feel about it today? Um, I still think arranged marriages work fine if it's done right, just like falling in love and getting married is also fine. You just have to make sure. See, I was always someone who was very logical and used my head. Yeah, I did fall in love. That's not the point. But And I did love someone before I married my husband. But 
it's there is a people the way in some ways I talk to the younger people in my division too that you expect too much in things today you expect your relationship will stay the same when you first meet and as you get married and stay together it changes over time and you need to make sure you you your relationship changes with that but they expect it to be all hunky dory and romantic all the time that doesn't work i think the idea of compromise and I think the expectations are different. I don't, I don't think that's true today of um, city-bred people in India. And I'm, I'm not being backward here. Divorces should happen. There are a lot of marriages that are terrible. Yes, I'm not saying that's a bad thing at all. And women's economic independence has really ensured that women don't tolerate a lot of nonsense and abuse, which mm-hmm. is absolutely the way to go. At the same time, doesn't mean that arranged marriages don't work. Just like, after all, a lot of things like Match and all these websites that come up here, it's like that. You uh, Here, it's not arranged by family. You go online and you meet someone and you with similar backgrounds and you or interests and you meet them a few times and decide if this well, is going to work. I have a question, though. So if you went back to India right now and would you, let's say you were going to arrange a marriage for one of your kids, would you... If the, if the child didn't want the marriage, if they're if they're like, no, I don't like her or him, I would never arrange for my kids because they've grown up with very different expectations. But I have younger cousins who all even now had re- arranged marriages in India, and it's fine. But they so I hear arranged marriage, and I hear a situation in my brain where the person is going to be told who to marry. And no, that's not you. how it works. Okay, that's not how it works. <laughs> so basically, it's it's like. Uh, an old school match.com and they say this is the person we yeah. think you should give a chance to yeah, yeah to and meet yeah and uh, many many times the first time they meet the first uh, it doesn't necessarily they don't click and so they say no and then they go on to meeting other people so it's, it's like a human version of match.com but now even in india in fact some of the first uh, newspaper advertising for partners parents did that in those days now of course there are lots of online things where individuals themselves put their profiles on and want to meet but the first time when we were all scandalized saying how can you have marriage advertising but then that's what uh, match.com and all are whereas we went i still think the way my parents my families did it where they actually knew the families knew my parents have arranged marriages well outside our communities which is unusual because they Mm -hmm. happen to be friends kids and so they arranged marriages because they knew the families and they were friends not because they belong to the same community or the same spoke the same language, which is a very different thing. Most of the arrangements happen within the same communities. I'm very curious. This brings up something interesting about culture. In American media, you know, we often see India portrayed as either poverty stricken or ablaze in the bright colors of Bollywood, right? So uh-huh. now, now I've never been to India, but I would like to assume that if I got off the plane and started walking down the streets, I'm not going to see tons of color powder thrown in my face and no. people singing and dancing. So I'm curious, what what is India really like and how accurate is the mainstream, mainstream portrayal of the country? Mainstream portrayal, again, Bollywood is Bollywood. It's like saying, is everything in America like Hollywood? Um, maybe Hollywood is a little more true to reality, except when you see the very fancy homes and fancy... It's like Beverly Hills is not the U.S., all of U.S., right? That's no, not most how... of the U.S. is like the San Fernando Valley. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, right. Um, but the same thing is true of Bollywood, especially Bollywood is far more uh, 
fantasized because there are there is a lot more realistic um, TV and film now, but the majority is still the musical, singing, dancing, fantasy world, which is what they portray. And unfortunately, people, even the kids, Indian, the kids of Indian origin here, their weddings are all becoming very Bollywood style. That's not how it was. That's mm. not how weddings. Well, what happen. about something like like Slumdog Millionaire? How accurate was that, that as a portrayal? That is actually a lot better. I mean, yeah, and Indians, I mean, big city slums are like that. Yeah, mm. so you will see the whole variety in India that you see here. It's a far more crowded country because our population is a lot more. It's four times the population of the U.S. in one third the size. So you can think about that. Population density, climatic erosion, all that is a lot more enhanced. At the same time, you'll see extremely high tech capabilities all across the country. You see extreme innovation at all levels. You will see extreme poverty and the whole range. It's You'll see the range from agricultural to industrial to poor to the top, uh, the, some of the richest in the world. And education, at the, the level of literacy, unfortunately, is not as high as here. I mean, that's the thing. Education, the amount, the percent who are poor or under the poverty line is much more. Now, do you feel that that overall Indian culture and the country itself has gotten better in the last, let's say, 100 years? Or has it stayed the same? What's your perception of it? Well, it's always changing, just like here. It's changed a lot. This is, again, personal opinions. Some things are a lot better. Some things are not that great, like the poverty, because of the population size and the issues connected with that, the level of poverty is terrible. But at the same time, education has increased rampantly. The capability, the, the lower middle class and middle class are doing much better than they did 100 years ago. Many of the social and cultural norms have changed a lot. Girls are getting the, the age of marriage, which is a significant thing, has increased tremendously and is a huge thing. Family planning has improved tremendously. So, And women's economic options are thousandfold from what they were a hundred years ago. So it's it's mm. tremendous. I mean, it's like the rest of the world. You'll see parts of India that are very much 21st century and more, and parts that you feel are like medieval times. Well, so, now you, you're someone who's traveled in the world quite a bit, and you've come from backgrounds where you've been exposed to several different aspects of human culture. And then I know then you settled in America and you've gone to school here and your education and worked here. I look at the world as someone who's traveled quite a bit, and I feel like, in general, people who don't travel tend to generally be a bit ungrateful for so many things that they just take for granted and don't yes. realize they are. Mm-hmm. And and as someone who has traveled and seen the things you've, I was going to ask you, you know, is it is it hard for you to see that uh, the lack of perspective there? Yes. Very hard. But at the same time, I work within an agency where everybody else has traveled a lot too. So we are like a microcosm. In fact, we were talking about this to the USAID and um, development agencies like this. We are like in a a bubble of ultra liberal, ultra um, forward thinking, very capable, very compassionate individuals. And that's... uh, side of America, I mean, it's like I found the best part of America. In fact, I always said university life here is so wonderful here. People really should 
come to to universities and see what it's like to be on a a graduate student on a campus it is wonderful that i i that experience i'll always think is one of it's a privilege to be a grad yeah. student in this country and then to be in aid is a privilege it's so different from the rest of the country that's why these last four years have been it's like it's such an eye opener to think that america can stoop as low as every, everybody else and that it's as it can be as corrupt as everybody else it's just the face of corruption looks slightly different but it's the same thing mm-hmm. it's no different and the level of ignorance and the, the education system truly sucks at the lower levels here it's own grad once you get to universities and all that it's it's the top of the world uh, but when it comes to basic education this country is really in bad shape what is there we can do about that do you think you have to change a lot of standards of even the teacher education first thing start with teacher education here you can get uh, become a teacher by doing a bachelor's in education after high school in most other countries you have to get a degree in something else first a subject you're going to teach before you go get a education diploma so you have a whole bunch of people teaching math in elementary school for example who have never done math properly you can't teach math like that it takes a lot you have to understand the subject before you teach it's only in high school here that they have people coming in with masters degrees in their field and teaching that's why high school teaching high school capability is very different from of the basic and in the basic they only it's extremely like a closed world they know nothing about world history they know nothing about what's happening around the world well not it's only that of- but in american education at least when i was in high school and elementary school we didn't learn the things that we actually need to learn we didn't exactly. actually learn the fundamentals of us history i i graduated from high school not knowing how to fill out a tax form or do any kind of business whatsoever that, even that is true of most other countries too but even with that uh lack in other countries and here the difference is i would say i suppose if you look at indian education i'm not comparing to india because the average school in india is not catering to the world standard or anything but basic reading writing if you have gone to school if you have gone through high school in india there is no way you're not going to be able to read and write here you have so many people coming out who actually can't read or write that's crazy that is just unbelievable and that to in a country like this and to have every state every county setting their own rules and standards to me is weird i mean in india it's too much of centralization with full control at the center which is far too skewed there here it's skewed the other way where there are no real standards do you feel that there should be a united states standard that everyone in grade school learns xyz and that the government mandates what's taught i think that sh- at least there should be a basic level and it's not what they test that that testing really doesn't do much mm-hmm. it's how they start and what is taught that there has to be and the other thing this is something i feel i'm not sure it's an old school thought i think but you don't do any service to kids by saying everybody gets through to the next grade without learning I mean it's I agree. they don't keep anybody back india it's of course the other extreme where there's so much pressure on kids to go to school they go for tutoring all kinds of things it's gone the other extreme like japan where kids are constantly pressurized and their exams 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 they don't know they don't play games they don't do anything else here there is a good balance that way at the same time everybody is just pushed through 
without actually holding anybody back. And that's ridiculous. Well, this is a much broader conversation yes, another time yeah, about consequence, yeah. because in the United States, we have become a bit of a country of wussies in that we are afraid now. Well, I'm not, but the country is afraid of punishing people for doing wrong, for, yes. for consequence. Oh, you can see and, that. And we, you see yeah, what's and, happening. And, 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 and for whatever reason, it's I agree with you. It's like this ridiculous notion that like everybody's a winner. No, not everybody's yeah. a winner. And some people have to learn. Some people might have to be held back because they need to work harder and, and achieve the goal. And there's nothing wrong with that. Even That's, the playing field and the opportunities they're given. Even the playing field at the lowest level by making sure everybody learns the same thing, not mm. even the playing field by just pushing everybody up, saying you're all great. That is that is doing such a big disservice to the kids, and they don't learn how to fail. They don't learn how to uh, take the consequences of their actions. They go out into the world thinking everybody is going to say they're great, and having a president like Trump didn't do us any great service by because he he embodied every the worst aspects of this country mm -hmm. and that's such a scary thing agreed 100 percent. well let's talk about your career for a little bit i'm curious uh was it back in the day or is it still today a challenge being a woman in your field actually not my particular field is very different the family planning development field has a lot more women than men actually at, okay. at our level yeah my our office has always been dominated by women and all our, uh, I think we have one male chief out of the five divisions, four divisions are led by women. That's great. So, and I feel very proud that I have 25% of my staff as men, but that's an unusual thing. Now, do you feel that the dominant presence of women in that equation is because of the fact that family planning tends to be a more, you know, birth oriented, child rearing feminine thing or no? Not really. In, actually, about 40 years ago, when this field really started, it was dominated by men. But it's changed over the years, and now it's more women-dominated. How has that changed family planning? The whole conversation of family planning has changed significantly over the last couple of decades. It's become much more not on about population control. That's not what it's about. It's about empowering women and men to be able to choose the timing and spacing of their children. That's the whole point. It's about empowering women to have more control of their bodies. It's about empowering women and men couples to be able to define their own futures rather than thinking it's an act of God and let, and there are a lot more options. And the whole idea we have is to help countries, governments, NGOs, individuals to be able to maximize their potential by giving, making access easier to different options for contraception, giving knowledge. That's our goal, getting knowledge out there, access, and decrease systemic barriers, improve systems to be able to help men and women reach their goals. And what people. are some of the countries that you work in? Oh, we work in over a hundred hundred countries, and so that and as a global, um, we are at the headquarters level. So our job is more technical. So we work more on international policy research. Most of the advances in family planning field have come from USAID. I'm very proud to say that. 
And we also give technical support to our country programs because unlike most other developing development agencies, USAID is unusual in the sense it has missions all around the world. It has offices on the ground. Mm. So we have foreign service officers on the ground and we have a lot of local uh, hires. They're called foreign service nationals who work for USAID. So it's... Now you say missions, you don't mean a, a religious mission. No, no, no. We mean the USAID government office. Yeah. That's called a mission. And the USAID office is staffed by both expats from the US as well as a lot more of the local staff. So capacity building and getting tra- transferring of technical know-how and south to south learning back from them because there's a lot from the developing world that we have learned. I'd like to know specifically what's kind of a challenge that you face as an organization or something boots on the ground that you can tell people what it's like. The challenges we face today are more about improving systems. I mean, access, we have increased access to contraception through the medical field, through NGOs a lot, but there are still a lot of areas in countries where hard to reach areas, either very rural or up in the mountains that we haven't been able to reach. Moreover, there's still a lot of cultural and traditional and gender norms that prevent a woman from being able to access what she needs. And how does how does USAID combat that? How do you show people science? And- yeah, we we have are actually both doing research as well as implementing programs on how to change behavioral norms. We actually work with communities. We we have lots of tools and approaches to actually get communities talking to each other. We provide information while at the same time facilitating dialogue and conversations so that there is a change in the way they think. At the same time, while increasing knowledge, we also increase access to high quality services mm. so that contraceptives are actually available when the demand is there. So we work on all aspects of it, the supply, the demand, the um, normative side, decreasing gender-based violence. That's a huge aspect of it because gender-based violence is a huge barrier to women's health. Absolutely. And so... So that's a major issue. And, and do you so, have actual data metrics of the success? Of, yes, of we do. We do. We have a lot of different ways of measuring success. For example, right in our own family planning field, there are several different measures. One of the most common ones that are used because it's easy to collect on a global and national level is called contraceptive prevalence rate. And essentially what it is, it's the percent of women of reproductive age between the ages of 15 and 49 who are actually using contraception at this time. Mm. That gives you an idea of what the prevalence is and how much more need there is. And there is also another measure of what is met need because we do interview, there are these big surveys we do every five years. They're called the demographic and health surveys. That's one of the biggest contributions the US has made globally to health is these big surveys uh, that are done with local institutions that talk to women, thousands of women and men about their current status of a lot of things, family planning, HIV prevention, other diseases, maternal and child health. And through that, we get an idea of what the women's and men's desires are, how many children they want, and how many do they have? Is it ideally what they wanted? What are they doing? 
to protect mm. themselves from pregnancy, unwanted pregnancy, etc. So we do these big surveys. We have other ways of collecting data on an annual basis, both locally and globally, that gives us a good idea of how well programs are doing. And what's what's a result of that data, in your opinion, over the last, let's say, 20 years? Oh, that date, we have seen steady, fantastic improvement since the 60s. For example, in the 1950s and 60s, the average number of children a woman had worldwide was six point something. Wow. Today, it's uh, worldwide about three something, if I'm not mistaken. I might have the numbers wrong. But the whole idea is a whole lot of countries have reached what we call uh, replacement level fertility, which is 2.1 children per woman. And forget about the point one, but it's <laughs> essentially you're replacing yourself. And India, which started off so high, and whole number of states in India that have reached that right now. That is unbelievable. Bangladesh, the success of some of these big, what we call the Eastern East Asian tigers, Korea, Vietnam, all of them was because of a lot of early work done by agencies like USAID. Bangladesh, all of them, these are big success stories for aid. And Africa too, Kenya, uh, Zambia, Uganda, all the improvements, there's a lot of USAID help there. Of course, so what earlier. Happens, I was going to say, what happens when you know you guys run into a situation where, let's say, there's a group of people that are in a rural area, they don't believe in contraceptives, but you want to educate them and show them some science. I imagine that's a huge challenge. It is, but what we do is we go through local NGOs, and we've always oh, an NGO, a non-governmental organization. There are a lot of okay. local civic-based organizations, and in the case of religious opposition, we've actually, for the last forty years, worked with religious leaders in those communities. We first get get them knowledgeable about what this is about, about how it improves the health of their community, and then they help us advocate for and provide information. And then we take people who are kind of locally, uh, people trust them, and we use them as our means of getting information. We don't go there and do it ourselves. We work with a right. lot of local uh, local organizations, individuals, influentials, advocates to work through all these issues. And if you had to sum it up, what is the end goal of all of this to try and get people in the world to to not reproduce as much no, to practice safer sex point. or what's the... No, yeah, safe sex. Safe sex is a big thing. So the whole point is to, to allow women and men to make truly informed choices, that they base their choices on actual information and knowledge rather than on misperceptions and misinformation. That's mm. the main goal, to empower right. women and men to make their decisions in an informed manner. And what decisions they make, that's up to them, as long as they know what the consequences of their various decisions are. So as a scientist, if you were to take the scientific model of all of this work and just for fun, shoot in the dark and make a prediction 100 years from now, where do you think things will be in this, er in this arena? Well, in this arena, we expect fertility to keep dropping across the board. It's going to get to... Uh, replacement level fertility will change. The, the amount of time it will take for various countries will vary. But what that also does is there's a huge population momentum. This is the period of human history where we have the largest number of young people below the age of 24. That's huge. It's because of the momentum. Even if countries have reached replacement level fertility, there's still so many people out there 
even if they're producing only two kids, but the base is so large and young people, that is our biggest challenge right now, a tremendous High, biggest in history, human history of number of young people in the world and giving them information and access is a much bigger challenge because communities are still pretty, uh, shall I say, um, conservative about what information can be given to kids. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing. And that's why we are making big, big inroads, trying to ensure that information that age appropriate information is being given starting from as low as 10 years or below. And that's a challenge even in this country. Yeah, I would imagine. Yeah, but there is there are ways of doing it. We have done some fabulous research and we are continuing to do research and we are continuing to use all kinds of innovative ways, including the digital platforms. So right now, a couple of my programs that I work to design are actually trying to develop avatar-based game in India to actually help girls and boys go through a decision-making process while at the same time having fun mm. learning about their bodies and how it works and how relationships can change. So you specifically as a scientist, what are your main goals with your work? What do you hope to achieve? We act, our job is to advance and the field. So getting better contraceptives there because every contraceptive, I mean, a particular contraceptive doesn't suit everybody. So we have some excellent ones out there, but they still have side effects. So we're trying to develop new generations of contraceptives that actually will have other health benefits too, have far fewer side effects like headache and nausea and things that are not bad for health, are not dangerous, but actually make women uncomfortable. So we're trying to get contraception as side effect free as possible, as cheap as possible. At the same time, we are also trying to improve services and systems, mm -hmm. trying to figure out better ways of reaching young people with information and services, better ways of changing norms, a better way to empower women and men. All this requires tremendous amount of research of all kinds, biomedical research, social science research, behavioral research, behavioral economics. We take the tools from all over to do our work. And one of the things that uh, you have to understand about AID is we are a government agency. So we are wholesalers. We don't do the actual research, but we fund other organizations to do it. But our role is also still very technical. We oversee the work of those organizations. We actually design the programs and bid them out. And then the winners work with us in how to implement them across the world. We evaluate those programs. So we do a lot of the research protocol checking, etc. So our job is to oversee what's happening, hmm. design and oversee and evaluate. And the implementers, actually, their job is to actually get the work done with local organizations. I'm, I'm curious, how far away do you think we are for a birth control pill for men? Well, actually, there are things being tested right now. By I know WPN. there's like 11B, MNTDC, whatever uh, it's there called. There are injectables and pills being tested by the World Health Organization, but it's a very much more complicated process than for a woman. It's taken this long because it's not easy to work with the male system. The female system is cyclical. The male system is far more difficult to tamper with because you then affect a lot of other things. So it's taken a long time. We started the research in this decades ago, but it's getting there. It's getting there. There mm -hmm. is, uh, it's much closer than 
we thought 20 years ago. More importantly, though, it's a matter, just like with women, it's a matter of who will use it and how well. I mean, there are some, after all, some of the best contraceptives in my mind today are ancient, like the condom. Mm -hmm. It is an excellent method if used correctly. Like with anything else, it has to be used correctly and consistently. It protects, it's the only thing that protects you from sexually transmitted diseases as well as pregnancy. Nothing else does. The male and female mm -hmm. condom are the only ones. But there are so many behavioral barriers. Well, so, so boil it down for me. Why, why do you think condom usage is difficult to get in place in some, in some places? In okay, firstly, it has to be used by men. And men around the world, there's a, there's a lot of misperceptions that it decreases pleasure. It could, yes. Decreasing pleasure, a lot of men in the traditional societies think, oh, if they use a condom, they, they think that uh, they, they want more children, that using a condom means that it's a sign of their, they having a sexually transmitted disease. So the advent of HIV actually denigrated the condom for family planning even more. Mm -hmm. So they say, I'm not running around with anybody. I'm not, uh, I'm not diseased. Why do you want me to use a condom? It decreases pleasure. So it's a lot to do with gender dynamics. It's a lot lot to do with misperceptions about the condom. It's a lot to do with inconsistent use because after all, you're not always prepared. That's, that's, there are all kinds of things with young people and older people. It's the lack of, lack of uh, planning, which is always, which happens a lot. And there are also, of course, misuse of it. It doesn't, isn't used correctly. So it tears. There are all kinds of issues. So that's why you can't have just one thing. That's why you need a choice of things mm -hmm. for protection. And that, that's why now microbicides, that's why people went into more women controlled methods because you can't rely on men to protect because the ultimate burden falls on the women. That's why the whole field moved into let's get to more women controlled methods also. Interesting. And how do you, as a woman, feel about that? Do you resent the fact that men don't want to seem to, you know, do their part, really? Yeah, personally, I do. I have always felt that if one of the biggest, I feel that personally, I feel that one of the biggest mistakes we made in family planning was not involving men from day one. It has always been viewed as a woman's arena and women's, and that's actually a disservice to both the men and women because around the world men have come to view this over the last few decades as oh that's a woman's job that's there whereas if we had involved them from the beginning and co-opted them it would have been a whole different story and actually we've seen that we've done a lot of research to show that if you actually work with men and work with couples you get fantastic results you get much yeah. better use of contraception but Working with men is something that for the last three decades we have been doing in small amounts, but we have such little funding that the, when, it, when you have to prioritize, you end up working mostly with women. But that's where our gender folks and we are trying to move. Our biggest move is towards ensuring that couples have access and that family planning is not viewed as solely a woman's responsibility. Does USAID have sister organizations in other countries around the world? Yeah, we work with all um, different organizations. We are a government entity. We are the, the branch of the federal government. But we work with local governments, all national and local governments. We work with you and non-governmental organizations. We work with the private sector. We work with for-profit companies and with private sector groups to ensure access and quality and demand. 
when we bid things out, it's all non-governmental groups that uh, get the awards, but we also work in conjunction with say NIH, CDC, the Gates Foundation, other development organizations, both at the international level and in the country level. What's your favorite part of your job? My favorite part, the fact it's intellectually very challenging and I love the people I work with, my own division. It's fantastic. And when you're actually in a country, I, I haven't been visiting countries that much more recently because my job has become much more on the management side, but my team goes out a lot. When you actually visit a program, it gives you such a boost because you see what it actually does on the ground. It's fantastic. Now you have two sons. Do you think it's been difficult for them at all to have a mom who talks so openly about sex and birth control and all that stuff? Or do you think <laughs> it made it, made it a, a better parental relationship? Actually in high school, when they were in high school, my husband, I, I talked to them constantly about this. I think, oh yeah, there were times when they would just shut their ears in the van when they were coming back <laughs> from tennis and say, enough. But I still remember my older son works in this field too. He's a professor of health economics and he works very much in family planning. But I remember his, he never got embarrassed. It was my younger one always who got embarrassed. Sham always got embarrassed. But Mahesh, I remember his high school friends, a handful had come to my place once. And there was there is this um, method we have developed with Georgetown University that's excellent. Actually, you can get it on your iPhones. It's called iCycle Beads. It helps a woman to understand her cycle hmm. and tells her exactly when she has the greatest chance of pregnancy and when she should use a condom or abstain. And it's actual. They have other apps. Yeah, they have apps like, like Flow. There's a bunch of apps like this. No, the, those cool. are different. There's a difference between those. None of them have been clinically tested to be a contraceptive. The standard days method is the only one. Ah, okay. And and now the dynamic optimal timing method, which actually will come out with a different name, both those are scientifically based and have been tested clinically, gone through rigorous clinical trials. And what's the name of the app? Uh, iCycle Beads for the, okay. for the smartphone and for an Android, it's just Cycle Beads. And the thing with that is, so when those kids visited, both boys and girls, I made them sit down and took them through the whole standard days method. Mahesh was sitting and grinning at uh, there, but the, these, the girls and boys were, the boys were very embarrassed when I said, you have to learn too, <laughs> because it's for your girlfriends. That's hilarious. So, but it was, but it's a basic, basic thing that every girl should know. I agree completely. And that's what we are trying to do. But with this avatar-based game, the whole idea is trying to get basic fertility awareness through the entire world. What's something about your career that most people don't know that you wish they did? Most people think the government spends so much money on foreign assistance. We are one half of 1% of the domestic budget hmm. and they think we spend all the and they say oh what are you doing and of the money we get because it goes to employing so many us-based organizations actually it gives a lot of employment to various state groups and uh, international groups so it's it's really serving both us and the world so it's actually got a lot of connections to national security that's one of the biggest things development has a huge connection to security i'm curious what's the most valuable insight that you think you've learned from your career overall so far there's so many similarities across the world that 
it's those similarities we need to work on and not the differences. Though we, the individual differences are important in how we tailor programs. But as far as basic human needs and conditions, it's the same. Mm. And all we see is so much strife because of us focusing on what are more overt differences rather than the fundamental similarities of our needs. I have a quote from you. You said, I believe it was your mother that said, my son makes condoms and my daughter gives them out. Is that correct? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this, was a, this was a while ago, actually, when my brother, who's a polymer chemist, was working on condom development. And of course, my program's very loosely, it's about contraception. Condoms are one part of it. And my mother said, everybody else talks so freely about their kids' professions. Here I am with a son who <laughs> makes condoms and a daughter who gives them out. How am I supposed to talk about that? <laughs> yeah. uh, well, I'm curious, have you ever considered quitting? And if so, what kept you going? The only thing that will draw me away from this is my artwork. But even that, the work we do, the work USAID does is so important in this world. And the people I work with are so wonderful. It is, that's what keeps me going. Mm. Ideally, I would like to hand over the reins to younger people because you need fresh thinking all the time if needed. But I would love to stay Involved. Well, I think it's very honorable of you to admit that because a lot of people are like, no, I should stay in this till I die. And and I think it's really important for artists, musicians, scientists to, to understand they reach a point where they go, I would like you to take over here. This is yeah, absolutely. Your work, and know? in the federal government, it's much harder to give up reins right away and say, I will take over something else. It's not that easy. The systems are built that way. But it's something I really want to do is to hand over in a few in a couple of years if I can. And meanwhile, my art is what's got me more and more interested now. Well, let's talk about your art. I mean, you had mentioned to me that you put it on hold for 25 years. Was that simply because of kids and career and family and all that? It's, I don't know what it was. Maybe see, I never trained in art. It was just a matter of interest because I saw other people doing it. My cousin especially, big influence on me. And realized very early on that I actually could sketch. And I used to do portraits of my family and all that just with a pencil. Loved it. But when I didn't go to art school and went into college and all that, you're, you're too busy doing all those things to continue with artwork if it's just a hobby. I mean, hobbies take a backseat and then you have kids. And I, the last sketches I made before I started again was when my kids were six and seven or something and they're in their 30s. So there was a big hiatus because yes, life kind of gets in the way. You are raising kids, you have a career, you have to work, you have to do all that. Yeah. And then in 2012, kind of, I fell very ill. I had cancer. It was like a vapor cup colon. What kind of cancer? Colon cancer. And went through the chemo and everything. And a close friend of mine who was also my boss, between us, we said we have to celebrate. And so we went to another friend had gone to this fun workshop in New York, upstate New York, of, on fabric collaging. And she said, oh, it's says no talent needed. And it was a lot of fun. I said, that sounds perfect. <laughs> so my friend and I, we went had a fabulous weekend, wonderful lady. She passed away recently from lung cancer, but very, very good collage artist. And she taught us how to appreciate fabric. And we came back, my friend and I, I said, we're not going to do that. 
and uh, I'm not going to do landscapes. I, that's not. So my friend said, we can do it. We can do whatever we want. We have now figured out that we can stick fabric and look at fabric differently. And so I said, maybe I can try doing my portraits. And I started, I sketched, my, actually the first portrait I did was Sham. I sketched his, and then I used the fabric just like paint. I actually stuck it every single line and I just got hooked. That's cool. And then I was experimenting with my own portrait one day and I said, I want to try something different. I got all the NCAA fabrics from all the universities I've been to because I was also big into basketball and big fan, basketball and football. So I got the fabrics and inserted them in my portrait kind of to tell the story while at the same time keeping the resemblance. And my brother loved it. He said, this is different. This is very different. So after having done my family's, all of them, I did Obama's portrait. That was that's cool. my first portrait. And that's that's when I really got into it and then figured out that there are shows to go to and started doing shows. Very and the shows whole and, art world has opened up ever oh, since, Oh, right? absolutely. It's just, <laughs> it's just, I've just done a commissioned piece. So that's what I love. I mean, this, this thing and this medium has got me hooked to. And so I finally, that got me going and I actually took a charcoal class. I had never taken a class and I loved how that helped move me forward in charcoal. I've recently taken an acrylics class, but I still think my fabric portraits, because they're so unusual, people don't usually do that. And so, I'm going to put your links in the show notes. And at the end, we'll talk about where people can find your artwork. Sure. I'm, I'm curious, you are a brilliant human being, a mother and an artist. Have I don't you, think brilliant is the point. No, no, it's more hard work. I was never brilliant. I'm going to go ahead and give you credit and say you're brilliant, but you are a brilliant, brilliant human, a mother, an artist. Have you ever felt like... Like you have the whole thing figured out, life, career, family, everything? No. The more, <laughs> the older you grow, you realize how little you really can plan anything. And I had a lot of help. My parents took care of my kids right through. They moved here in 94. I left my kids with them in India because I couldn't afford good babysitting. My husband and I, the kinds of jobs we were doing, we couldn't. But they moved with my, when my dad retired from the railways, they all moved here. My parents essentially raised them because they live with me. And so that, and that is a part of our culture that I do not understand why that's a part of our African Asian culture that I still appreciate so much. My grandmother helped raise me. My parents raised my kids. I don't know how the couples do it here, raising them all by themselves. I feel so terrible for them. It's such a lot of work. And the kids miss out on so much. Yeah. Having that other generation is such a boon. Yeah, it gives a perspective that you're not going to get otherwise. No, and it's not Good easy. or bad. I mean, it's still, yeah, you know. It's, yeah, it's not, a, it's not easy living with three generations in the house, but it it's the benefits so outweigh any negatives that I really don't, I can't imagine it otherwise. I couldn't have done it otherwise. Is there anything that you still feel really driven to achieve as either a scientist or an artist? Artist. I really wish I can, I could actually get to be known more for my art and do more and get more commissions, do more interesting stuff. And I also would love to learn, have take more classes and more abstract art. I'm very much a realist. And some of the portraits I'm doing now with the interest in history is slightly getting there. But abstraction is something I want to push my brain towards because I'm not naturally an abstract artist. Hmm. I 
taken one class, I learned to appreciate more modern art. I never could. I always liked traditional art, the Renaissance artists and more realistic artists. But having taken one class where the teacher was very good and seeing different types of modern art and understanding it really has got me to appreciate modern art more. And that's why I want to really wish I could do more abstraction. Well, you know, as soon as you retire, you can make that your main goal, right? (laughs) What would be the title of your autobiography? Either the scientific artist or the artist in art art in science or something like that. I like it. I like it a lot. What was your favorite childhood book? Favorite childhood book. There was an author as a kid I loved. And it's a British author. We used to read a lot of her. And that was Enid Blyton as as a child. And from there, I grew to more Agatha Christie. We had a lot more British authors that we knew about. We didn't know American authors till they came here. So not not the classics. So I read many of the classics, but always got more into the thriller mystery arena. (laughs) And romances, of course, good old Regency romances like Georgette Heyer. I still love Regency romances. And I still watch shows only that have happy endings. There's enough in life going on without having being miserable. Yeah, people criticize me actually often because I don't watch horror movies or thriller movies, yeah, I, and I don't. I, I don't like thrillers. Stuff really. I like thrillers. It, it has to be a good thriller, not not a gory one though. Like no, I don't want to exactly. watch Saw or that kind of crap. No, yeah. I can't. Yeah. It has to be something intellectually thrilling, but it also has to end well. Mm. Good has to win over evil. Yes. Otherwise, I hate it. Yes, people people say me all the time, but why won't you watch whatever? And I said because there's enough dark stuff going on exactly. in the world. I don't need to have it in my entertainment. I want to disconnect. And, it was you know. like. Which is why I didn't like the ending of Gone Girl. I haven't seen it. Don't tell me. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what was the first movie you saw that you remember that made you cry? Made me cry? As a kid, there there are Hindi movies I saw that have lots of tear-jerking ones, but English movies, the one that made me cry? It can be a Hindi movie. I don't remember. See, I've been watching movies since I was 12, 13. Oh, the first movie I saw in the theater that really made me cry was a movie called Anand. It's Spell a Hindi it? movie. A-N-A-N-D. It's it's a story of a man who's dying of cancer uh, and about friendship. And so it's a it's a one of the true tearjerkers. Oh, it sounds wonderful. Are there any books that you think should be mandatory reading for all human beings? I think To Kill a Mockingbird should really be mandatory. I agree. I love that book. That book is something else, yes. I am curious, and I, of course, want to preface this by saying I hope I don't appear culturally insensitive when I ask this next question, because now, you know, today you use the wrong sentence and your career's over. It's so ridiculous. But anyway, the question is, how Indian are you? And what I mean is, culturally and with your heritage today, you've split your time between where your birth country and in America. How connected to your culture and whatnot do you still feel today? Certain things are kind of ingrained. Like, I'm not religious overtly but when I was sick it kind of automatically I went to temples just before my chemo it was more for myself I don't believe I frankly think uh, organized religion is the bane of human society but that connection to something higher was important for me at that time Mm -hmm. but it's more for myself so and well, I'm looking at you right now, and the audience can't see it because this is like, but you still wear the traditional red. Bindi, the bindi, yeah, more because growing up, 
my we grew up in the north where they don't wear this but i come from a fundamentally south indian family and one day my father said you know girls faces look so nice with the bindi because the bindi is more for decorate it's like any kind of makeup in little young girls in my um, part of the country wear black ones with the same stuff as coal and when you're married you wear red but it's this is not even traditional but just because he said that and i got used to seeing my face with the bindi so it, that's it i never and it's also kind of like my south indianness in some ways that i wear it and i've i don't like my face without it that's cool so do that's, those come in like a little stick on sheet of like a hundred of them and you just peel one off every yeah, morning yeah exactly exactly it's oh, not cool. the traditional one the traditional ones were made with a red powder Oh. And you put these are now stick-ons. This is the modern version of it. So it's like going to Staples and getting those little round stickers. You yeah, use in you get them supplies, in Indian stores. Dude. You get them in Indian stores. That's cool. See, thank you for educating me. That's cool. Yeah, but but I'm not very traditional in other ways. I don't go to temples often. I don't go to Indian. Uh, I'm not part of Indian groups, so I'm not at all traditional that way. But if you look at the fundamental things like having your parents live with you very traditional yes now wait there's one one traditional question that has to be asked yeah because this is important to me okay can you make a mean sog paneer no i am hopeless at cooking oh so disappointing i hate cooking i, get I love it. indian food yes i do too and we get it from the indian restaurant and we freeze it or my mother cooks my mother is a great cook so she's cooking or i get it from the indian stores i hate cooking that's funny so now uh, are both your parents still alive yes they live with me that's wonderful and how, how old are they now 83 and 88. That's wonderful. My mother just retired from teaching. Wow, that's incredible. That's incredible. Well, and congratulations. I, I think having that is is just a fantastic thing to be that yes. close to your family. Yes. That's wonderful. I'm curious, besides art and science, what do you do with your off hours? What are your other hobbies? Read romances and mysteries and watch a lot of TV. I watch all the thrillers and I'm a, also I've got so I was a real estate agent for a while. That was another thing I got into. I love real estate. <laughs> so I watch a GTV a lot. For 10 years, I was a realtor part time with another funny. person, but I loved it. Okay, scenario for you. It's eight o'clock at night. You have the house to yourself for once, and you're going to put on some music and just dance around. What song would you put on? What's your what's your dancing jam song? It's Hindi songs, Bollywood. I listen to a lot of that. And thanks to my husband, who's a big 70s English, I mean, music fan from Western music. I, over the years since my marriage, I mean, this year it'll be 40 years, I listen to a lot of rock and uh, rock and roll. And so I've got to know some of, the, and my favorite, my favorite song of all time on that is Locomotive Breath, Jethro Tower. <laughs> <laughs> when that song comes on i mean it's like okay that's awesome i'm curious do you have a favorite food uh favorite food no i like a lot of foods but in general i have a weakness for sweets of all kinds every kind i eat everything and anything how do you think your focus has changed throughout your life like what's different for you today than when you were 20 30 40 etc 20 30 40 i was very ambitious and very focused on always planning, planning, planning for the future. I tell you, 2012 did a number on me, but what it did do for me is kind of losing the fear of death a bit mm. and understanding mortality and saying, okay, you can't do everything. You can't see everything. Just 
do what you can. And thanks to my brother and sister-in-law, I've traveled a lot in fancy places, not just the developing world, but also Europe, China, and all on holidays with them. That's great. I love that. And I wish I can do more of that. And my son himself will travel a lot too, because he works in this field and he's, that's why I want to travel to Europe and other places with him again. But yeah, taking things a little more, shall I say, casually and not worrying so much. Not I, I was a born worrier. That's the other thing my parents would have said about me. I worry about everything. You and me both. And I was always a hypochondriac, and I was a hypochondriac all through. My dad always to tell me, used to tell me that I'm just an old Jewish woman, like yeah. sitting around worrying about everything. That's, yes, that's, and yeah. worrying about my boys. I mean, they say, okay, enough is enough, but I do worry <laughs> all the time. Well, I mean, I think that shows love, you know, that's wonderful. I mean, I know, but I don't. Well, my, my mother, if I don't call her like every couple of few days, you know, she'll call me and be like, I was worried about you, you know, but I love it. And, and the truth is she's my exercise buddy. So like if I go out for a walk or I'm running errands, I always call her just to kibitz and be like, hey, what are you doing? And yeah, it's something, you know, while your parents are still here, if you like them, call them. So, hey, friends and listeners, PSA, call your mothers. Yeah, I call I call once in three or four days. And I know Sham just lets me go. He will call back or he'll text. My older son does pick up most of the time. And But the thing is, I, I keep telling them, you should be thankful I don't call you every day like some of my <laughs> relatives and friends, especially with their daughters. Every day. Oh, that's funny. Well, Mahira, if you could sit in an old-timey pub somewhere in Europe with anyone from human history, alive or dead, uh, except for members of your own family and any religious prophet, who would you sit with? What would you drink? And what would be the first question you ask them? I would sit with Obama. Okay, what would you drink? I don't drink normally, but I think I would go for a single malt whiskey. Okay, and what's the first question you would ask former President Obama? It wouldn't be anything profound anymore. Since my art, I would say, would you see the portrait I made of you? <laughs> now, let's say he's sitting there and he has the portrait and he goes, I bought no, this. No, it actually because... was bought by someone recently. So if uh, he has it I with him, oh, wouldn't that be wonderful? I'll take so, so many selfies so he with says, him. He says, Dr. Kara, I, I saw the portrait you did of me and I loved it. What else? What else would you like to know? What else would I like to know? Mm, I would actually like to meet the rest of his family. I admire Michelle so much too. Mm. And I would like to know from him, where does he see the U.S. going? What does he see happening to the Republican Party? Because in my view, that party is really gone downhill. And unless they are held accountable, I I think this country is in dire straits. And I would ask him, what would he do? What would he advise people to do to change the way this country is thinking? Well, I'm not a former president, but I do think one of the things we need to do is bring back the middle. I think we need to have a multiple party well, system. Absolutely. Or yeah. the way the, or the, way the uh, Democrats and Republicans used to be before Reagan, yeah. which is once people were elected, they worked together to solve problems. Yes. It, today, it's like if the idea comes from the opposite party, it's going to be no, no matter what it is or how good it is. Yeah, I completely agree. Well, hey, if you could travel in time, where would you go and why? I would love to travel back to Renaissance Italy for art and to Paris 
with Madame Curie and others for science. But I also know what the health situation for women was like in those days. <laughs> and I would say, oh, God, no, I don't want to go there. <laughs> but for these other things, I would love to learn art from Da Vinci or Angelo. Oh, my God. Just being in there. Just the thought of it. Those, they were geniuses. Now, that is true genius. You said you watch a lot of TV. What's your most guilty TV pleasure? Any one of these uh, uh, silly thrillers, NCIS, NCIS, uh, New Orleans, then uh, SWAT, SEAL Team, any one of these action, because <laughs> they're mindless. And I also started watching a lot of European TV, which is interesting. Their mysteries and their things are very well done, some of them, they're mm. Much better. Their, their actors are not all so handsome and all those. So they're much more realistic in how they look. So it's much in, more interesting that way. So I've got a lot onto that. In fact, there was an Italian show I loved. What show? So, Montalbano. Watch it. It's a. It's a. Um, uh, he's a detective, but it's very nicely done. It's Italy. Uh, what quality do you most admire in human beings today? Today, kindness. That seems to be the answer I get quite a bit which I like. And logic. Logic. Common sense seems to be missing. Well, and I think from kindness and logic come common sense actually quite often. So are you afraid of dying? Yes, because I don't know what's out there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I, I know, right? Well, speaking of dying, what do you hope people would say about you at your funeral? That I made a difference in their lives. If heaven exists, and assuming you arrive, what would you like to hear God say the moment that you meet? Oh, I've been waiting for you. If you could choose any, which superpower would you choose? Superpower, being able to get peace everywhere. No, that's not a superpower. You that's not a superpower from, the, from one of yeah. these very Shazam kind of things? Yes, exactly. <laughs> one of these very Shazam kind of things, yes. <laughs> Flight. I would like to be able to fly. Then I can right. get then get whatever I want. Yes, you can fly around the world spreading yeah, good cheer. Superman. Yes. Like you like the Santa Claus of public health. Yes. Yeah. If you could go back in time and tell your younger self anything, like you fall you uh you jump back to like twelve or, or sixteen year old Mahira, what would you say to her? I would say go to art class, art school. That segues beautifully into my next question, which especially for you is very poignant. What do you think is the purpose of art? Art is it's actually for health, mental health, creativity. It hones your creative skills. It's much more for pleasure and and also to convey messages. Mm. It's a great way of communication. Agreed. Because it can tell a story. And that's why my portraits have become the way they are, because I want to tell a story through it, not just make it something beautiful. I think that's lovely. If your life had a mission statement, what would it be? I don't know anymore. At one point, I would have said public health, but I don't know anymore. I I think it's multiple things. I doesn't have a single mission. Does it excite you to say, I don't know what that would be? Yes. Yes. Because, you know, I, I was so sure when I was 20 and 25 what I would do. And, but the more, old, the older you grow, you realize there's so much out there. So much you don't know, so much to do, and you don't have the time for it. So you do what you can, but dabbling in a lot of things is not a bad thing. I agree. Being a little bit of a Swiss Army knife is really cool. Yeah. What's next for you? Really more 
getting, making sure that my division passes to good hands and is that research still survives because research is always under the gun mm-hmm. because people don't understand it as well and it's always underfunded that that survives. And to really, I hope my art flourishes and my children, my boys flourish. My husband and I, that's our main thing that we hope they do well in, that they're healthy. More than whether they do well in their careers, I don't care. It's whether they're happy and healthy. Let's say 50 years from now, when you're gone and your kids might listen to this podcast again to just hear your voice, what would you want to say to them from the past? I would just say, be there for each other. I mean, siblings, if you have good connection with your siblings, it's such a blessing. My brother and I, we grew up fighting like everybody else, weren't together in the same place for a long time. I came to the U.S. much, but we are very close in matter in what matters most. Mm-hmm. We're always there for each other. And that's what I would like to see my boys have, that they have each other always. Mahira, the last thing we do on the show is a little game called 299 Philosophical and Life Questions with Moonbird. I have a list here of 299 fun and philosophical (laughs) poignant questions. You get to pick two numbers from 1 to 299, and I'll ask you those two questions. What would your two numbers be? 6 and 240. All right. Number six, the first time on the show being asked, and I can't thank you enough because this is one of my favorite questions I've wanted someone to answer. What sound or noise do you love? Sound or noise. You won't believe this, what has happened to me after 2012. It's very, very embarrassing, but I love a fart. (laughs) Mainly because that was... Wait, if it makes you feel better, so do I. Yeah, and that was the only (laughs) indication I had after my surgeries and all that, that I was back to normal. That is fantastic. So, yes. I'm sorry to say that's what it's come to. I want you to know that at the end of the year, every year, we do an epilogue episode and I pick the number one question that people have answered from the 299. And right now I can already tell you it's only January, but you are in line for the winner of the year with that response. (laughs) That's amazing. And remind me, what was your second number? 240. Let's see here. Okay. Number 240 also appearing for the first time on the show. Thank you very much. What have you learned from your past relationship? Okay, learned from I learned from my previous bosses. I had had two incredible, three incredible bosses, but the last two, I've learned a lot from. It's how to mentor, how to make sure, how to ensure that you view the success of your division as your success and let them flourish. That's mm. what. I really, really have learned. They were incredible. That's fantastic. Gave me the freedom to be what I am. And if you had to pick one thing from all the wonderful traits of how to mentor, what's what do you think is one of the most important things? Is actually to give them the freedom to flourish. It's not hold them back and actually being pushing them, being the wind behind their sails. Let them be in front and you be behind them. I think that also could apply to being a parent. Yes. Yes. But yeah. parents, as parents, what you tend to do sometimes, like I, I mean, get so overprotective that you try to uh, try to push them in ways they don't want to go. And same thing, actually, even for your division, you really need to make sure that you let them be what they want to be. 
I think that's beautiful. Dr. Mahira Kara, thank you so much for being on the show today and taking the time. I really appreciate it and sincerely wish you and, and all the work you're doing the best of luck. Thank you so much. This has been so much fun. Uh, it's a blast talking to you. And <laughs> yeah. uh, you, you take care. I wish you and your family the best. Thank, Thank you so you. much again. You too. Stay safe. Friends and listeners, the links are in the show notes. But if you'd like to learn more about the important work that Mahira and her colleagues do around the world, head on over to usaid.gov. That's usaid.gov. And if you'd like to check out Mahira's amazing and unique art, go to mahira-kara.pixels.com. That's M-I-H-I-R-A-K-A. ARRA.pixels.com. And while you're surfing the web, please steer your browser over to patreon.com forward slash moonbird and show some support for the show. We really appreciate it. And if you want even more Moonbird in your life, and hey, who wouldn't? Head on over to memoriesofamoonbird.com or visit me on social media at memoriesofamoonbird. Stay safe. Stay safe.